0: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Borchina. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I'm thrilled that you're tuning in. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today. Uh, We've already been in this a couple weeks now as we've been looking at agape love. This this is the love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we've spent uh, now a couple weeks really examining verses 4 to 7, and we're going to pick up there here today and cover six more attributes of love. Love, agape love. This is the kind of love that comes by way of the Holy Spirit. It's not manufactured by the flesh. We can certainly try to attain this, but only by way of the Holy Spirit will we truly find victory to exemplify the very nature of Jesus Christ as he was able to look to the crowds with compassion in his heart and filled with love, a love that would take him to the cross to give salvation that would be available to all that they would receive this if they so called on the name of the Lord and declared His name, confessed His name, repented of their sins, that that kind of love that would take Him to the cross, an excruciating burden that He would bear, he would do this out of love. And so let's talk about this love of First Corinthians 13, 4-7 and pick up right where we left off. If you missed the previous weeks, you could certainly go to calvaryfountain.com and there you'll find a, a few links. One in particular is audio and video. You click on that link, drop down there, you'll see a podcast and radio link and you'll see a, a number of the archived broadcasts right there. And you can click on those and, and get caught up at your leisure. But uh, here we are, First Corinthians 13, 4 to seven. Let's read. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So uh, let's pick up here with the 10th attribute that's highlighted here, that, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That, that's how we can word that perhaps a little differently. That might align with your NASB version uh, rather than does not rejoice in iniquity, as we might see uh, with the New King James version there. So uh, one of the reasons I detest watching the news is that the bulk of the stories that you'll see seem to concern people's misfortunes and misdeeds deeds. There's something in our human nature that causes our attention to be drawn to murder, trials, uh, all sorts of tribulation in the world, FBI probes, natural disasters, even human tragedy. And love is not like that. Uh, love takes no joy in evil of any kind, according to Philippians 4, verse 8. And, and it takes no malicious pleasure when it hears about the inadequacies or mistakes, even the sins of someone else, love is righteous in its purest sense. In Romans 12, verse 9, tells us, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, after eight sobering negatives come five glorious positives. Listen to this, love rejoices with the truth. So, for those of you who have studied, uh, perhaps you studied ethics in school, and you may have come across the system Joseph Fletcher labeled as situation ethics. Now, Fletcher taught that it, with any action, whether it be lying or adultery or even murder, there can be it, it can be classified, if you will, as moral. If it was done in love, suggesting that if there was goodwill within any action, that it could be justifiable. And that's just absurd. I would argue that if any action that it's not conformed to the truth of God's holy word, it simply cannot be done in love. And truth and love go together like hand and glove. You see, truth must make our love discriminating, and love must make our truth compassionate and forgiving. And together we have balance to navigate all actions by. With this is our our filter, our understanding how we operate in this world. With this truth of love, that's why love rejoices in truth. So if our actions are in accord with agape love, we'll always welcome biblical truth and we'll never resist it. You go to John chapter eight verses. 31 to 32, we read, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, truth sets you free, and freedom is love. Now, that's Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. Truth sets you free, and freedom is love. Now, number 12 here of of these attributes of love, love bears all things. Now, bears all things, that comes from a Greek word of stego, and it means to cover something. It's related to the word for a roof. A covering that offers protection from the hostile elements. And I can tell you here in Colorado, some of you uh, probably appreciate your roofs more lately than than perhaps even before. Not just from the heat and the, the blistering sun, uh, but I just had uh, my automobiles destroyed again and house wrecked and so forth. You know, of course, it's not wrecked as it probably would describe. I mean, there's furniture still intact, of course. But the hail that just came about a week ago uh, just laid siege to all of our personal belongings again. And the one car that I had left that didn't have hail damage uh, was just totaled uh, just a couple days ago. So uh, yeah, it's been one of those kind of weeks. But I can tell you, I certainly value that roof when those hailstones were coming down and banging on the roof with great intensity, I could tell you that I so value the roof like no other time when that type of force is coming down upon you so in the same way, love bears all things as it is an image of a roof, a covering that offers protection from hostile elements. so think about that as you think about love first peter four eight says that love covers. A multitude of sins. That is precisely the meaning here. You see, love protects other people, it doesn't broadcast their bad news. If we truly exemplify this kind of love, gossip will be so far removed from us that we'll start to exemplify the very nature of Christ. So it, we could see that uh, th- things like gossip should be far removed from us, it, not broadcasting the bad news of others, uh, seeking their detriment. And you go to 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Romans 1, 29, Psalm 34, 13, amongst many others. So it, it goes the second mile to protect another person's reputation. Uh, even if it feels like they're not as concerned about yours you will go out of your way to protect another. You're going to take the higher road. You're going to exemplify the attributes of Christ, not because someone else has already done it for you, right? You you got to be the pace setter to look out for the well-being of others. So there are two very relevant applications here. Number one is it love doesn't nitpick, it doesn't point out every flaw of the ones you love. And secondly, love doesn't criticize in public. This is perhaps Paul's primary meaning here, that love doesn't do its dirty laundry for the entire world to see. And that's why I cringe whenever I hear a husband humiliating his wife in public or a wife making snide remarks about her husband. I always think if they do that in public, what do they do in private? As a friend of mine once told me, there are many times in my life when I've been sorry I opened my mouth, but there's never been a time in my life when I've been sorry for keeping silent. Now, that may only apply uh, when you perhaps should have shared the gospel message with someone and didn't. But for the most part, we can do a better job of keeping our mouth shut rather than taking delight at the expense of another's suffering, that that we're going to belittle them, talk bad about them, maybe even use it under the guise of, well, I'm just sharing a prayer request about their need. (laughs) We're very bad about that. So when it comes to the needless criticism of other people, this is really excellent advice. If we're truly going to model this a kind of agape love, this is excellent advice for us. And and moments of silence can give us time to further process and respond with love and wisdom that comes by way of the Holy Spirit. I I think we can all do a better job in just pausing and thinking about the next word that comes out of our mouth a lot, lot more carefully in this, right? We need to think about this with great discretion. A great selection of our words because we are ambassadors for Christ, after all. Uh, the 13th attribute here is that love believes all things. Now, th- this one can lead to some confusion. Let- let's uh, hi- go into this one a little deeper here. Love is always ready to allow for extenuating circumstances, to give the other person the benefit of the doubt, to believe the best about people. Now, now many of us have developed a certain distrust of people because of negative experiences. We've heard stories about how the person who stopped to help a motorist in distress was robbed or even murdered. We've been warned never to loan money to someone without a legal document guaranteeing some kind of repayment, even if the other guy's a Christian. The stories go on and on, but love always trusts first. Now, this requires discernment of the Holy Spirit. I mean, always think, innocent until proven guilty, especially in this day and age. With social media and all that we're surrounded by, it seems like we're recklessly putting out opinions without bathing it in facts and research first. And we could even harm the reputation of another when we haven't done our due diligence to truly explore that. And all we're doing is regurgitating information that we've heard. We never verified it. And as ambassadors for Christ, we need to be very careful about this, especially Especially as the days draw near to the coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to see the reputations of many faithful men and women perhaps dragged through the mud to, to harm their testimony in some way. We know the enemy's extremely clever, especially in these days where we see churches that are refusing to close, like Rob McCoy out there in California, John MacArthur, amongst many others. There's a lot of churches that are refusing to close, and then suddenly people form these opinions that they're being reckless and irresponsible Rather than examining the situation a little bit more closely before they formulate an opinion and then uh, maybe even come against the reputation, come against the character of these individuals who have been firm in their faith for a long time, saints who have worked tirelessly for the gospel message. We got to be very careful in this. Uh, if, you know, if any of you have ever seen those deep fake videos, Uh, We're living in an age where we need to challenge and question everything. I I mean, videos can be convincing and be totally fabricated. Uh, This is true of even the information that we receive. This is why the only source of truth that you can verify and know that it is absolute truth, not some person's version of truth, not moral relativism relativism as it applies to them, but absolute truth is in Jesus Christ our Lord found only in the truth of God's holy word. So some of us treat our loved ones in nearly the opposite way, that you are guilty until you prove you're innocent. All right. We always treat them like they have to earn our trust and they can sense that and it creates barriers. So, I, I, I you know, people tend to become what they believe them to be. All right? So if I think the worst of somebody, they, they don't tend to change my opinion rather they I, I try to find everything against them and bring them down even more and then they maybe even fail to live up to those expectations that, that originally had set for them and it, maybe they grow tired of trying to win my trust and, and then they just give right in to the opinion that I have of them that's wrongfully uh, could, that's wrongfully formulated if you will I, I mean you know what I'm saying here I mean either either people live up or down to our expectations. If you treat a man as trustworthy, they'll strive to prove themselves worthy of your trust. I believe for the most part, if they're believers especially, we should be inclined to say, if the same Holy Spirit is in them that's in me, then I'm giving this over to the Lord. It's the Lord's money after all. It's the Lord's fill in the blank. It all belongs to him. You're just a steward of what belongs to the Lord. So therefore, you need to turn that situation over to the Lord. Let them rise or fall to the equation based on their being accountable to God, not to you as judge, jury, and executioner. So if you tell a child, take a big swing, you can hit the ball out of the park. Uh, We love when when children get that kind of encouragement. What do they do? They're going to go up to the plate and swing like they're Babe Ruth. And if you treat your wife as if she's the most beautiful woman in the world, she'll be transformed right before your very eyes. That's what Jesus did. To vacillating Simon, he said, you're a rock. To a prostitute, he said, your sins are forgiven. To a woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's the simple power of believing the best and not the worst about people. We can all do a better job in that area. Number 14, love hopes all things. Now, this is simply a step beyond believing. Paul's not here advocating some unreasoning optimism, which fails to take account of reality, nor is he just teaching the power of positive thinking. But he's suggesting that love refuses to take failure As a finality of anything, either in oneself or in someone else, love never gives up on people. And the reason the believer can take such an attitude is that God is in the business of taking human failures and producing spiritual giants out of them. And he can do it with you or your child or that impossible person you're thinking about right now. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse, don't look at them, but you may be thinking about them. But but of course, always hoping doesn't mean that we sit back and just watch God do his thing. Although that's important, we we got to be still and know that he is God, but it means that we get actively involved in the process as he molds the future according to his perfect plan. You see, love hopes and expects the best. Love never loses faith in other people nor gives up on them, but remains faithful to them in spite of their shortcomings. So this may not seem fair that you have to be this mature, faith-filled optimist, uh, but if you don't, who will? I mean, if we stop acting like Christ, the world will fall into chaos and our disobedience will be held in account. Uh, What would have happened to Sodom and Gomorrah if God had found even 10 righteous people there? I can tell you, he said he wouldn't destroy them, according to Genesis chapter 18, verse 32. So the five cities in the region were huge. Listen to this. There's estimates that there were over a million graves on the Jordan side of the valley alone, and yet 10 people could have made all the difference. That should be convicting for all of us. Number 15 is that love endures all things. The word endures here is a it's a military term that means to hold a position at all costs, even unto death, whatever it takes. So, so the mat, the battle, if you're looking at the landscape here, the battle may be lost, but the soldier keeps on fighting to the very end. Okay, this is important even for married couples. All of this can apply into our marriages, but it certainly should also apply in the church. So the battle may seem like it's lost, but we are going to fight to the very end because we know who is already victorious. This word pictures an army surrounded by some superior force and they're being attacked and slowly overwhelmed on every side, or so that's the feeling of it. And one by one, your comrades are falling at your side and through the noise of the battle comes one final command, stand your ground and if necessary, die well. Right? So love holds fast to people it loves. It perseveres. It never gives up on anyone. Love won't stop loving, even in the face of rejection. Ooh, that's a hard one. Boy, I tell you, I've been rejected so many times, even by people I've spent many years in ministry with, especially over what's going on in churches today, whether people were wearing masks or not. People I have served in ministry with for over 10 years suddenly challenged my character, suddenly questioned decision-making, determined to leave the church as a result of whether or not there were masks being worn or not. We have taken our eyes off the prize and then they feel like they have just given up on you. So do you reciprocate? You probably know what I'm talking about. You probably felt this a time or two. Maybe in your own families, you've gone through these discussions of politics, and the discussion of the landscape, the cultural affairs of things. These are very divisive issues. And so you've probably been rejected a time or two already. Now, you can take the option of saying, they reject me, therefore I reject them as well. I'm going to reciprocate. Their action is now a cause and effect. They deserve me to walk away from this. Oh, no, no. The Lord doesn't let us off the hook that easy. He certainly didn't. He didn't take the easy road. He took the hard road. The hard road is that I'm going to set the standard. I am no longer my own. I belong to another who didn't give up on me, and therefore I will not give up on them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray that I can speak to them differently, that they'll hear my heart, that I won't disrespect or somehow dishonor them or say something that turns them off from the truth. Perhaps I'm more to blame in this equation than I care to admit, right? It takes a lot of self-examination here. So no one can have a totally clear conscience after reading through these 15 expressions of love. As we examine the many aspects of love, we find that love can only be of divine origin. That's a truth of agape love. This is something that God gives by way of his Holy Spirit. According to Leon Morris, clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness when we examine these verses of 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. So this love, this love list that defines God's gift of Himself in Jesus Christ is really given to us now to model it. If you go back through these verses and everywhere you find the word love, substitute the word Christ, and all the statements will still be true. So the kind of love being described is a love that has a source wholly in God. And as we look at each of the phrases, it becomes obvious that we're defining a lifestyle that's really beyond our human reach. And that can be frustrating. It can feel exhausting. Well, then how am I supposed to achieve this? It's absolutely impossible unless we abide in Christ and ask Him to live His supernatural love in and through us. Then and only then can we truly love. And how do we love? We love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our soul, with all our mind, according to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. So if we love him like that, then we could truly love others. It begins in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you truly love the Lord like that, you're going to be the best spouse possible in your marital relationship. And from there, it's only going to cascade out into your workplaces, your relationships through the church body, because you've got the alignment exercise correct It is God whom you love with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. It just flows through your veins. So now let's look at the other side of this, verses 8 to 13. If we can get through this in our short time here, I might just cover a couple of these. But in these final six verses here, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul will discuss the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts and the eternal nature of love. So you see he says here, verse 8, love never fails But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So when Paul says love never fails, he means love never ends. The synonym for this expression is love abides. You see, Paul argues that the spiritual gifts will have fulfilled their purpose one day, but love will continue. In fact, we see this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, that knowledge of the Lord will one day fill the whole earth just as waters cover the sea. Therefore, there'll be no need to give the spiritual gift of knowledge of the Lord when it's given to all. Here he says in verses 9 to 10, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So Paul explains that we're limited in our understanding, but this will not always be the case. There's a time of perfection that's coming, and we keep our eyes on that. It's a glorious finish line. The perfect refers to this returning of Jesus Christ our Lord. And and when we recall that in 1 Corinthians 1.7, he says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was pointing out this ongoing role of the gifts until the return of Christ, so that there would be only one possible interpretation of perfection here. Not our perfection, but this perfection that comes by way through Jesus Christ when he appears on the earth. That is the glorious finish line. Of course, we know that we're given new bodies, new names, new wardrobe, new assignment as a royal priesthood, but this perfection that comes is Jesus Christ our Lord. And we receive then, as I just mentioned, new perfect bodies, so that we can be like our king. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11-12, we then read, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, and then I shall know, just as I also am known." So Paul explains that our understanding of God is indirect in this life. He uses two analogies, childhood and a mirror. You see, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will no longer be necessary for their purposes and mission will be complete, as they've already empowered the saints for the work of ministry, and then the finish line comes. So as a childhood that passes away, so will the time of the spiritual gifts also pass away. And the analogy of the mirror, this implies that our visibility of Christ is indirect right now. So in other words, Paul is comparing the nature of looking in a mirror to the relationship we will enjoy with Jesus when we actually see him face to face. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. And and look, I, I enjoy looking at pictures of people. But if I had my choice, I'm always going to prefer spending time with people and looking at the real deal rather than the photo album. And, and that's what the word indirectly is translated here as. It's also often considered perhaps the allusion to what we see in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, when God speaks to Moses face to face, that this is coming, look forward to this. So uh, the Corinthians were apparently familiar with the Old Testament traditions about Moses. We know that from... 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, and in 2 Corinthians 3, 13-18, Paul had recourse with the Corinthians to contrast Moses' ministry under the Old Covenant with the hope afforded through the apostolic ministry and the New Covenant, that just as Moses enjoyed this intimacy with God, we also will have intimacy with God. Now, now we also have to understand here that Moses couldn't look on the very face of God and live Okay so even that intimacy was limited all right and we will be able to finally see him and behold his glory as we see in 2 Corinthians 3:18 but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. We see the work of Christ in us, but someday we will see Christ face to face. All right, we're going to end there today still so much more to cover as we go into verse 13 here, 1 Corinthians 13, and then we're going to be- begin our study of 1 Corinthians 14, believe it or not. <laughs> we're going to get there, and we're going to talk about some of these other spiritual gifts, especially the very divisive subject of tongues that has separated churches for far too long. We're going to examine that closely. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through that, so I hope you've enjoyed the study as we have been through the 1 Corinthians chapters verse by verse up until now, and we continue to do so as we finish up chapter 13 and into this very, very powerful chapter of verse of chapter 14 as we look at tongues and other spiritual gifts. You're going to be blessed by that, I know. So thank you for tuning in. Again, if you'd like to learn more about this ministry of Engage in Truth, this is a broadcast of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we would love to see you there. God bless you, my friends.